It's time for Growing Texas Olives, the only podcast made specifically for you, the Texas olive grower, and to my knowledge, still the only podcast in the world fully dedicated to just talking, you guessed it, how to grow olives. Thanks for being here today. I am your host, Stephen Yanak. Well, it was another beautiful day, which I guess is debatable. Uh... <laughs> But something about psychology, uh, if you keep telling yourself it was a beautiful day, then then you start to believe it and maybe feel better. But, I mean, it, it was. It was all right. Just another uh, another record day, another 100 degrees, uh, no rain this time, not lucky enough to get any rain. So just hot and dry, as usual. But, uh, you know, all in all, I guess we got to be, be thankful. Beautiful day. So, whoops. <clears throat> Today on the podcast, uh, this one I do believe is actually going to be short. Um, it is today is like the fourth of August, August fourth, twenty twenty two, and just a few odds and ends that I wanted to talk about today. Uh, look at me getting another podcast done. Uh, that's two weeks in a row now. Got one last week and putting one out this week. Maybe we keep that up. Well, I doubt it. It's not going to be every week, but uh, we're going to do do our best. So just a few odds and ends today. Um, first one, uh, the UC Davis Olive Center is putting on their master milling course. So if you're interested in learning how to mill olives and become a certified master miller, that's the course for you. I went to it uh, back in 18, I believe it was 2018. A few of us from Texas went. This is a really good course. Um, they had a different director. The center had a different director back in 18, but the new director is really good. I expect this this course this year to be really good as well. I actually don't know the dates offhand. I just remember seeing uh, seeing the announcement about it. So if you're interested in, in learning to mill olives, look up uh, the UC Davis Master Milling course. So there's that. So I guess the next thing, I had an idea that I, that I wanted to run by all of you. I wonder what you think about having some kind of a, a conference or meeting or uh, maybe even just a virtual event where we try to bring together everyone in the southeastern United States that's interested and uh, involved in growing olives. So as many as you, as many of you may know, there's there's a kind of a budding olive industry very similar to Texas uh, happening all across the southeast. Mostly Georgia and Florida is where I see news and information coming from. They seem to be more, uh, I guess, maybe uh, involved or gung ho, or maybe there's more acreage or whatever the case may be. Those seem to be the big players. But I have seen some stuff out of Louisiana. I've heard uh, Mississippi and Alabama also have stuff going on, uh, some some olive trials maybe, or just some growers getting into trying olives there. Uh, of course, I also think about the, the states west of us. Uh, I'm not sure about New Mexico, but I know for sure Arizona has has actually quite a bit of olive acreage to my understanding. Uh, so, I, so I thought about maybe even bringing them 
in on this idea as well, but for sure the the southeastern states, right? We share a lot of similarities in our in our weather patterns. Although of course Georgia and Florida escaped the 2021 freeze that we had in Texas that that really did a number on our olive trees. But anyways, that that's my idea. Um, you know, I I think it'd be really cool in an ideal world we all get together and we meet somewhere in the middle. Now the middle might be I, I don't know I can't I always forget what states what order those states are in in the middle I know it's Texas Louisiana and then and then Mississippi or is it Alabama I think it's Mississippi and then Alabama and then Georgia so the middle might be something like Alabama Mississippi and if there's not a lot of olives there then you know meeting in the middle doesn't make a lot of sense I thought about maybe we could all meet in Georgia. Um, Maybe at a at a research station or at an olive farm that wants to host, uh, but I realize that that's a lot of traveling, especially for us here in Texas to go that far. Uh, Louisiana might be better, but still, for a lot of us, that'd be quite the trek. And I don't know how much there is going on in Louisiana, so so I'm kind of leaning more towards something just virtual. You know, all of us getting together maybe on a Zoom or or whatever platform is being used these days. And just make a make a day of it or a half a day of it. Uh, you know, every state gets their turn, or you know, however many people want to speak. If there's extension or research people that have information or data or research findings or just experience to share, uh, maybe some growers, uh, you know, experienced growers in those states, maybe the ones that have had success or failures uh, that that could be learned from. So that's kind of my idea. Um, I think that'd be really cool. I think that'd be that would be helpful and informational, uh, or, or or educational for all of us just to share uh, what's worked, what hasn't worked. You know, Florida Florida has does kind of have a research project going on. I don't fully understand like who runs it exactly and how it all works, but I saw some of their recent reports. They're trying. They have like uh, forty different varieties that they've collected. And that they're trying there, they're you know evaluating what they're looking at is for a low chill olive variety, one that'll flower and set fruit in, in low chilling environments so they can escape some of the freezes. So, anyways, I just I'm wondering about that, um, and I guess I bring it up uh, to 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 get your feedback on it. Number one, uh, so let me know what you think about it. If it's a great idea and you're excited, contact me somehow and let me know. Uh, but what I really want is is maybe somebody that can help me get in, get in touch with the right people. I think I have a contact in Florida. Uh, Michael O'Hara Garcia, I, I believe, is the president of the Florida Olive Council. I've actually sent him an email today. Uh, but if there's somebody else, an extension or a university person or researcher, uh, especially for those other states, Georgia, even Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, even New Mexico and Arizona. So, if you know anybody in those states uh, that you could put me in touch with that would help kind of kick off this whole idea, uh, I, I would be I would be appreciative if you would pass that information along to me. So I just that's kind of my idea. Maybe we all get together online. That way, none of us have to travel. None of us have to spend the money. Gas is high right now, and everything else is high right now too. So maybe we all just get together online and share pictures and data and stories and uh, try to learn from each other. So that's one thing. That's my idea. Give me your feedback on that one. 
Uh, and then I guess I have just uh, kind of one one other thing, or really two other things. I, I've been been reading. Well, I'm always reviewing literature and and reading new papers that come out and old papers on olives that I find. And so I want to talk about a couple that I read lately and and I think maybe apply or that are at least interesting. Um, I'm actually working on updating our olive fact sheet, the fact sheet that Texas A&M AgriLife Extension has put out. Uh, You know, the first first edition was like in 2005 or 2012 or something and and then we updated that version in 2015 and so i'm working on an updated version right now that hopefully can be published before the end of the year just with our updated understanding on uh, for example the the results of the variety trials like in the in that olive fact sheet and the recommended varieties we have manzanillo on there and I really take issue with that because Manzanillo is consistently in the bottom of the rankings of all of our variety trials around the state. It's just so cold sensitive. It just freezes at every, with every freeze, it seems like. That being said, I, I know there are some mature Manzanillo olive trees in Castroville, just west of, west of San Antonio, where there were. They, they got hurt pretty bad in the freeze, but they were, they were there. They were big. They were huge. They were like 15 years old or something. So anyways, I'm getting off track, but I'm updating the, the olive fact sheet. And one of the things I come across in the fact sheet, I, I think they were talking about weed control. And one of the things they said is there in there is that disking or, or tillage is not a recommended practice for weed control in the orchard because it damages roots. And, and, I, and I sort of agree um, partially with that. But I bring that up because I just just finished reading this study, and it was a, a brief study, and not a not a super replicated year after year, lots of sample size, huge sample size. But it was a good study. Came out of Italy. I think they did the work in 2013, 2014. It was published in 17. Gives you an idea of the academic world. Uh, but but what they did is they had two year old trees. I don't recognize the variety name i'm not going to even try to pronounce it i've never actually seen this variety name but they had two-year-old trees planted in a high density orchard in italy in a in a heavier clay soil and at two year in march of 2013 which had been the start of their second leaf so their second spring in the ground so in march which is before flowering for them they don't they don't flower i believe until may so the tree seems pretty probably pretty dormant at that time in march it's not doing anything visibly so they went in in march uh they actually measured and and found out where the root system was how extensive it is or it was and basically they found that roots were generally 98 percent of the roots were in the top one foot of soil and within two feet away from the trunk so they went in in March with a single shank ripper on the back of a tractor, and they ripped down to one foot deep, one foot on each side of the tree. So on each side of the row, one foot away from the trunk, they ripped one foot deep with a single shank. And so they're cutting roots. Obviously, that's the that was the purpose of this study is to cut the roots and observe the observe the what happens. And, and they did that. Uh, very purposefully putting the shank in that certain spot and, and cutting those roots. And they estimated they only cut about like less than 30% of the root system because they were, you know, away from the trunk, a foot on either side. 
and basically their findings were that the trees that had root pruning conducted, the trees that had their roots pruned, had a little bit reduced shoot growth, so they didn't grow quite as uh, as much that year as compared to trees that did not have their roots cut, did not have this pruning, root pruning treatment. So they grew a little bit less, which which they were trying to do. They were trying to reduce vegetative growth. I guess they have a problem maybe in that clay soil uh, with with excessive vigor. So they're trying to reduce growth without really like hurting the the health of the tree, and that's exactly what they found. Is they reduced the vegetative growth moderately, not a whole lot, just a little bit, kind of hold them in check. But the the other physiological parameters of the tree weren't really harmed. Uh, you know, photosynthesis and gas exchange and stuff maybe was reduced for for a few days or up to a week or so, and then recovered to the same uh, same level as the untreated, unpruned trees. But the big finding was in their, I guess that's their second or I guess that would have been their second leaf in the ground. The trees that had roots pruned produced more fruit. So there was no difference in in the size of the inflorescence. There were no difference in the number of flowers per inflorescence. There were no difference in the number of inflorescences between treated and untreated trees. There was no difference in fruit weight, individual olive fruit weight between the untreated and treated trees but the trees that were treated that had this root pruning produced more fruit and it was obviously their yields are very low these are very small trees i should probably in fact i'm going to pause right now and go back and look at those numbers so i can give you an idea of what kind of increase so hold tight all right so i just looked it up and i don't it's pretty nice i don't even have to play any elevator music at you um and, and and the the results are kind of striking when I looked back, looked at the at the actual paper, the untreated trees, the trees with no root pruning. Of course, again, these are very small, very young trees. Produced 0.14 kilograms of fruit per tree. Obviously, this is metric. This is Italy and Europe, which uses the metric system. Uh, so 0.14 kilograms per tree in the untreated. In the treated trees that had their roots pruned that one time in March, they produced 1.53 kilograms per tree. So 0.14 versus 1.5, essentially a tenfold increase. Now, now don't don't focus, I guess, too much on that tenfold increase uh, because I'm not saying here that everybody should go out and root prune their trees because you're going to have ten times the amount of yield. Uh, you know, on, on a mature tree, that's definitely not going to be the case. I just can't imagine that that would hold true on a mature tree. But you may increase. Uh, you know, I think there's a realistic number of increase, uh, percentage of increase might be like, 20% versus tenfold. Uh, that tenfold increase is probably just due to the fact that these are very young trees or very uh, newly established trees. Uh, and something about the root pruning may may um, affect the allocation of, of carbohydrates and, and, and photosynthetic assimilates, uh, basically the sugars and stuff that the tree makes to live. The root pruning, they think, might might kind of mess with that and, and reallocate some of those nutrients, carbohydrates, and things more like a mature tree would, where it's going to allocate those more towards the buds for reproduction, 
and less towards just vegetative growth. So they, they didn't really offer a whole lot of explanation for that increase in yield, but they documented it. And I thought that was interesting because our fact sheet says don't disc and their study says, well, a little bit of root printing was okay. So yeah, I don't know, make what you will out of that. Um, those were, were drip irrigated trees, just very much like what we, a lot of you have here in Texas uh, with a single line of drip emitters down the row. So the majority of your roots are going to be in the row and a small percentage are going to go out away from the tree into the alleys between rows. And that's, of course, where they did their where they did the root pruning or ripping with that shank is away from the trunk, one foot towards the alley. So they didn't cut a whole lot of roots. So anyways, that's it. I thought that study was interesting. Uh, something to keep in mind. Maybe, you know, maybe you want to do that. Maybe you have some two, three-year-old trees. Maybe you go out with a single shank. Maybe you just do five trees. Maybe just five trees or, or, or two sets or three sets of five trees. Don't do the whole dang orchard because then you don't know if it worked or not because you don't have any any control, any untreated trees to, the, to reference to. So anyways, um, golly, 18 minutes. Uh, I have one more study I want to talk about uh, that was interesting and it kind of relates to all of this. You know, a lot of you have, like I've said, we have a lot of growers with young trees replanted or restarting orchards realize that all of those trees whether they've regrown from a stump that you cut down that was frozen in the freeze killed in the freeze or whether that's a new tree that you planted realize that all of those trees are the wood i guess is physiologically mature because those cuttings were taken from mature trees mature trees that have the ability to uh, they've reached adulthood they've reached maturity they're able to produce produce fruit we've talked about this before on the podcast go back and listen uh, this last study I want to talk about, uh, which has implications for us, uh, I believe was conducted in Spain, in southern Spain, uh, and this was on Hoji Blanca, or excuse me, Oya Blanca. I'm probably still not saying that right, but that's the variety, and that's one of the varieties we have here in Texas that's in our trials and does fairly well. I believe these were six-year-old trees, and what they were interested in is you know, as the tree grows through the through the year, starts growing in the spring, you know, it's making new shoot growth. And as it's making new shoot growth, it's laying down buds or, you know, pairs of buds at the at each leaf, at each pair of leaves that's that's grown at the base of those leaves of the buds. And those buds are what can potentially become inflorescence next spring, next year. Well, as the year goes on, some buds are grown and set, say, you know, in the early part of the growth of the years. Some buds are going to be set in May and June. And then as the year goes on, some buds are going to be set in August, September, October. And they wanted to look at, well, which ones of these have the capacity to actually become inflorescence? Is there a point in time in the year where, okay, any buds set after this date just do not flower, uh, and that would give us signs of of uh, floral induction, uh, the whole floral induction initiation differentiation process that we've actually talked about on this podcast before too. So go back and listen to those. So they're kind of looking at uh, nailing down when that floral induction takes place. At at what point, if we know. Uh, or, for example, if they can say, okay, no buds formed after 
uh, July, no buds formed after July flowered the next year. Well, then we can infer that perhaps flower induction happened somewhere at the end of July. And so those buds formed after July just do not have the did not receive the physiological uh, signal from the tree to become floral buds the next year. So that's what they were after. They followed these six-year-old trees. And let me just, I just, in the sake, for the sake of time, jump to the conclusion here and talk about it. Obviously, olive trees have an off year and an on year, right? Well, in, in traditional areas where they make fruit every year, um, or they have good fertilization conditions for the potential for fruit every year. So in the off year, obviously, the tree has has a small amount of fruit, much less so than the on year. Well, in that off year, even though it has, because it has fairly, whew, well, in that off year, it has very few fruit on it, so it makes lots of shoot growth. And so the next year will be an on year, it'll make a bunch of fruit on all that shoot growth that it made the previous year. Um, but during that on year with lots of fruit, it won't make a whole lot of shoot growth. Well, so they looked at primarily the off year trees, the ones that made lots of shoot growth. And so they made a lot of buds. They grew fast early in the spring and early summer. I shouldn't say early spring. I say spring and early summer. They grew fast. They laid down lots of pairs of buds and that, that growth slowed down as the year progressed, but they continued growing either, even though slowly they continued growing and setting buds until about mid-October. Every bud formed up to about the third week or the end of September produced an inflorescence the next year. So basically their finding was, well, every bud formed before October became inflorescence the next year. Every bud formed after the 1st of October did not become a a floral bud the next year. So there was maybe uh, three pairs of buds, including the terminal bud that were formed in October, and those ones did not flower at all. So they're, they're inferring that perhaps floral induction takes place towards the end of September. I think the take home message is that uh, at least one that applies to us this year, obviously you could, you could think about us right now, 2022, as in an off year, right? There's no fruit on the tree, so next year should be an on year because there's not a big crop load for the tree to mature or to grow out. So we're in an off year, and the implications of this study on us is that every bud that you grow through, and we have to kind of adjust the schedule here, right? That Spain, they're talking about, okay, everything up to the end of September could be potentially uh, reproductive buds the next year. I think we need to adjust that date a little bit. I think things are different in Texas. We tend to bloom earlier than they do. We tend to harvest earlier than they do. Uh, Maybe we grow, we continue growth a little bit later into the season than they do. I don't know. We, we, you guys need to help me with that. Uh, but I guess the, the point is the take home understanding is that even, even growth made now, I think in August and September, I think is going to those buds laid between now and the end of September, I think could have the potential to be inflorescence next year. Even if this, this is only the first or second leaf, uh, maybe if, if this is only the second leaf in the ground for your trees. I've seen trees in Texas in their second year in the ground just totally loaded with fruit. It, it, of course, it all depends on how good of a job you do growing that tree. If it's a really healthy tree, made lots of new growth, 
looked strong, shut down nice over the winter, went dormant, got good fertilization conditions. I think that second year in the ground tree does have potential to produce fruit. Not a whole lot, obviously. It's restricted by size. But I guess that was the point of, of today of reviewing, uh, talking about that study, is that don't discount the growth that's going to happen between now and the end of the year. I think at least through mid-September, any bud made between now and then, I think still has the potential for making fruit next year. Cross our fingers. Boy, it'd be nice to see some fruit in Texas next year. Two years without fruit uh, makes a makes a man sad. <laughs> that's a new phrase. Okay, I guess that's it. We're going to wrap it up for today. Just those those few announcements and and a little bit of science for you uh, to kind of keep things fresh. We're going to come back next episode with irrigation again and probably for the next few episodes after that. We're going to really dive in and get into irrigation. I think this is something that that needs to be dove into. I'll just leave it at that. So you guys try to stay cool out there. Don't overheat. Drink plenty of water. And make sure the trees are drinking plenty of water. And I'm going to help you with that next time. So you take care of each other out there, all right? And take care of those olive trees. And we'll talk to you again soon when it's time again for Growing Texas Olives. <laughs>